Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Scuttlebutt. This episode features Vic and William interviewing Miles Vining, who has been spending time overseas helping where he can, but with a focus on the Afghan refugees in Tajikistan. I apologize for the weird release schedule we've had these last two weeks. We're not going to release schedule uh, episodes on Fridays too often, but... It was a mistake on my part for trying to release the episode a little too early. Anyway, this week and next week we have some awesome stories to tell about the U.S. pullout of Afghanistan. This week Miles talks about a little bit about the Afghan mindset and the uh, his time spent over there in Tajikistan help, helping Afghan refugees at the border. And next week we have uh, Tom Schumann, who's been on the show before as well, who's going to be talking about the efforts that he went through to get his translator out of Afghanistan. We hope you enjoy these next two episodes, and without further ado, here's Vic talking to Miles Vining with William also on the mic. Hey everybody, uh, here we are. Uh, I'm here with Will. Howdy. And we've got our guest, a uh, our reoccurring guest, Miles Vining. Hey, how's it going, Miles? Hey, Vic. Always good to see you again. Thanks. So yeah, much. man. This has been this has been really great. So, um, you are th- our third reoccurring. So, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but yeah, man, this has been really great. We've been uh, emailing back and forth for a little while now. Uh, I just I love just sort of keeping track man of what you're doing dude you are like <laughs> you're like a man of all seasons dude. it's just so fun uh just following you keeping track of what you've been up to because you know the thing about it is we all i think universally complain about our the time of day or how much we have to do in a day and how much time available and things of that nature and it seems in many cases that you find the time and not just times to do things that you want to do, but things that are like helping you're helping the world. Um, and you recently got back from helping Afghan refugees, man. And so for one where, you know, that this issue resonates with me being a fan, you know, um, first generation American from refugees of war, um, and then having helped and worked with Afghans as they've been coming into the country. Man, thank you so much for everything you've done. Um, yeah, dude, I, the floor is yours, dude. I just, th- I, th- I thank you for everything you do, man. Well, well I'm very, I'm very humbled. And um, I thank God most of all for al- allowing, allowing me to be a part of, at least a very small part of some of these efforts across the world and the US and stuff. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that, Vic. That means a lot. <laughs> Yeah, dude, absolutely. Um, well, so for those who didn't, uh, weren't, haven't listened to your first interview yet, um, just really a quick introduction. You're the our co-author of um, Into the Hellman with the Walking Dead. Fantastic book. We talked about it in the episode. Please, for our listeners, go back, listen to it. Miles just has an amazing perspective on, you know, literally boots on the ground uh, in Afghanistan. You are also the creator of the CELA report, and you've, like we talked about, you do extensive work with uh, refugees and displaced persons, man. Um, but again, for those who aren't fully aware, could you just, I don't know, sort of 
give us a little bit more about who you are and what you what you're doing? Um, in terms of in terms of work, oh well, with with Afghanistan um, in particular, um, well, I kind of you know when the whole Kabul thing kind of fell through, um, I kind of got involved and in, you know you know involved as much as possible, as much as I could, um, helping a lot of my Afghan friends in Kabul um trying to get out and you know the whole frenzy at the airport and tracking that and everything and afterwards um with my work with uh, you know i'm a very very closely a part of uh, this, this uh, relief group called the free burma rangers um that's based in uh, southeast asia and you know since 2018 i've been been you know i'm, I'm part-time full-time um in between time a member of fbr and doing relief missions with fbr in burma and in syria um, so when Afghanistan happened, um, you know, a lot of people at FBR were very concerned and they wanted to do something about it. And, you know, through a lot, throughout a lot of, uh, prayer and discussion, there was a, there was a decision made to try to try to go to, um, Tajikistan, well, to go to Tajikistan. And initially we wanted to help, um, in Afghanistan. Um, however, initially the idea was, you know, to try to go to the airport, um, to try to go to what was left of Afghanistan before the Taliban kind of took everything. Um, but, so, and that, and that soon, that window shut very quickly. Um, as we arrived in Tajikistan in early September, I think September, like second or third, I forget. Um, and you know, what was, you know, where, uh, the, um, the Northern Alliance was sort of held up, was trying to make their stand in the Panjshir Valley. Um, they they capitulated. Um, actually, like we like we had like you know all the news was we got news that ISI had you know uh, air assaulted into the Panjshir Valley and stuff like before the plane in in the U.S. Um, and then we got to Tajikistan and landed in Dushanbe, and um, we were like, yeah. <laughs> it's all over so it's like well well it doesn't look like we're going to the, you know doesn't look like we can help in the punch here um so what that turned into was helping in tajikistan and connecting with various um uh afghan expats diaspora groups that uh working closely with the afghan embassy in dushanbe um and then going to going to the east of tajikistan to the uh the pamirs and learning as much as we could about what the situation was on the border. Um, and out of that, FBR has been able to help um, some recent figures or um, a, a number of families um, that help support in Tajikistan and then also also in the U.S. as well. Um, and then helping families financially, helping families um, in a number of other ways with that. And that's more sort of above my level. I'm sort of like at the ground at the ground level on there. Um, and that's you know that's kind of that's kind of what we got up to. And then we I, I stayed in Tajikistan for all of uh, September and October, and re really got to go out and see the Pamirs, the Pamir Mountains, and travel along um, what's called the Pamir Highway. And it's the it's this Tajik Highway that just goes along the border between Afghanistan and Tajikistan. And I stayed in some of these border towns. Uh, one was called uh, Khorog, is a big one. Um, Ishkashim uh, was one that we went through as well, um, and really trying to get the mood and the feel, you know, what was going on um, out there. And to be honest, there's very little, there's very little that could be accomplished um, in Tajikistan in terms of the quagmire that a lot of refugees found themselves in. Um, you can't, 
there, there's nobody that can cross the border. Um, a lot of the refugees, well, a lot of Afghans couldn't, can't cross the border because one, a family getting across, um, that border is locked down. Um, so you had a lot of uh, Tajik border, uh, Tajik border forces, um, which is actually their own, you know, separate detachment of the military. Um, or I think Ministry of Interior. But you see, like they had, they had that border on patrol. Like you'd see, I think in a, like a 20-hour period, I think we saw maybe you know a dozen patrols because it takes you like almost the whole day to travel that the just uh, this town called Khorog. Um, but over that period, like you'd see these infantry, these border patrol patrols, um, you know, fire team size, squad size elements, just going up and just literally hiking in ranger file up and down the border on the Tajik side, just looking for an excuse to shoot at anything in the water. Um, and it's just one river that goes along through it, right? So there was locked down in that sense. Um, it's an extremely remote and it's extremely remote area. And then the other problem that you have is even for Afghan refugees, for Afghans who even wanted to try to, who even wanted to cross that river, um, which by the way, Almost all the border uh, control checkpoints, all the entry, uh, all the entry control checkpoints, were um, completely shut down. Um, apart from, you know, further, further west, some of the main ones, and, and just north of um, uh, Kunduz in Afghanistan, that checkpoint, that that entry control point remained open. But all the other ones on the Pamir Highway um, were totally closed, locked down, no chance of opening up. So you couldn't go through the checkpoints. Um, there were fam there was at least one case of a family that did try to cross, but then they were like returned back to Afghanistan and then they were shot by the Taliban. Uh, and I don't know, you know, obviously if this is too much like, you know, the 35,000 fo 35, foot level, um, you know, obviously just let me know. But like, so what my first question is, is, you know, as you're dealing with the Afghan embassy in Tajikistan, what is that like being that? They didn't establish a government in exile. So what was, I guess, what was the embassy even compo comprised of? Because obviously it was Jairoa, not Taliban, right? So, like, what, what, what could they even do? Like, they're sort of like a lone yeah. outpost, it seems yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. So they did. There were there were these attempts and talks at establishing a government in exile. Um, there were there was this uh, formulation. There there was just an idea to do it. And we we actually met very very closely with the um, the Afghan embassy in Dushanbe. Um, you know, we were guests of the ambassador on several occasions. We met with the ambassador's son. Um, his son is this like 20 21 year old, very very capable, smart kid named uh, Miran, um, and then a bunch of the other uh, embassy employees as well. And they were so they were all the so the, the Tajik government sort of had sort of let the Afghan embassy continue because the Tajiks, um, the Tajiks, the ethnic, well, the Tajiks on the Tajikistan side are very friendly and in typically accommodating towards their their Tajik cousins on the Afghan side who are Afghan mm -hmm. Tajiks, right? Right. And that Tajikistan, um, Tajikistan has a, uh, as has, has a historical precedence 
of being sort of thankful and accommodating to to the Afghan Tajiks because during the Tajik civil war, the Afghan Northern Alliance um, helped out Tajikistan in many ways in the 1990s. Right, so th they're no friends with the Taliban. No way at all. Like they aligned more with the Northern Alliance folks than obviously the Taliban, right? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Taliban have the Taliban have little to no um, foothold foothold in Tajikistan. It, it's 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 very difficult um, because because they're they're by diametrically opposed to each other in terms of Taliban represent this Pashtun way of life that the Tajiks are like, and we're not all about that, man. We don't even speak Pashtu. We speak Dari, right. uh, we, we speak Tajiki. Um, so that was, so there was a very, so Tajikistan has traditionally been very, very friendly towards Afghan Tajiks, not um, Afghan, um, you know, Afghan Pashtuns. Um, you know, if an Afghan Pashtun were to go to Tajikistan, it'd be like, you know, it's, it's almost not even an option. So there, and there were several cases of Afghan families who were of Pashtun origin and looking at going to Tajikistan, and they're like, nah, we don't even want to chance that. Um, Same thing no with like Hazara and stuff too. Some yeah. of the other tribes. Hazaras, Hazaras get a little bit of a better, uh, better rap, um, but they do stand out as well. Um, but it's really the Pashtuns that are that aren't very welcomed as much in Tajikistan, and the Tajiks can you know pick them out from a million miles away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so for uh, someone who's not uh, too in tune with it, is it just like long-standing ethnic rivalries that have been developing over centuries, or? Oh yeah, these these are these these ethnicities are these ethnicities and tribal identities have been you know set in literally set in stone since the Stone Ages, right? I mean, your tribal identity is everything um, in this part of the world. Um, it, it's who you it's who you marry. It's who you uh, it's where you fit into society. It's where your political and religious affiliation is, um, you know, in all sorts in, in all sorts of ways. And that what that's what that's what was really fascinating about going to the Pamirs, because I was introduced to the Pamiri people, which are actually um, they actually follow a, uh, a sect of Islam um, uh, called Ismaili Shiism, which is the Ismailis are like their own separate thing within Shia. And so Ismaili Pamiris are in their own sort of category in a number of ways. Also ethnically, the Ismailis, the Pamiris, have nothing to do with the rest of the Tajiks in Tajikistan. These are hardy mountain people who love to live, they live autonomously, they live in the mountains, they do their own thing. And there, you know, there's a lot of friction between the Tajiks in Tajikistan and then the Pamiris in the Pamirs, the Ismail Ismaili Pamiris. Um, and, you know, there's I mean, just this year, actually, there's a flare up of uh, fighting where the government came in and then the Pamiri shut them all down or something. And then there is some very severe fighting um, a couple of years ago as well. So that they're at odds with the Tajiks. And ironically enough, they're just they're just so fascinating in this sense. And that was, was that was a huge takeaway in, in going on, on that trip into the Pamirs. Um, you had um, you have this dynamic where the Ismailis um uh the ismaili shias pay adherence to the aga khan who's this uh descendant of the prophet muhammad who's like he's like the 47th or the 48th descendant kind of thing by the way of their own descendant strain other shias don't don't recognize that descendants right so that's an important note here only the ismailis recognize this this line of descendants this line of descendants right um but the aga khan 
has developed this crazy network of uh, relief organizations, banks, um, educational institutes uh, to an extremely high standard. I mean, the Aga Khan Development Fund is, you know, on par with the United Nations and World Food Program in a number of different ways at that local level. So, like, you go into the Pamirs and you step into another world in Tajikistan because the Pamiri people they benefit from the Aga Khan's development network and education system. And a lot of them, you know, if they try hard, they get scholarships, they get sent to London, to Harvard, um, you know, to Yale, and they come back extremely highly educated. And then they're starting to run banks and they build roads and dams um, all over the world. You know, they're successful, but they also, you know, go back to their roots. And then so you get a lot of this development and education that comes right back home to the Pamirs. So it's ironic in a way, Pamiris um, actually have, you know, a better shot at sort of a higher standard of, of living and education than the rest of Tajikistan does, because they're they're just on a totally separate, um, totally separate uh, schedule in a lot of ways. And that Dude, that that, uh, that is fascinating, that. man. I mean, it reminds me a lot, obviously, um, with our work with the Kurds in northern Iraq. Um, and it also reminds me even going back to like our alliances with the Hmong people during the Vietnam War where you get these sort of like this third party that doesn't isn't really in line with either one but has this infrastructure has this sort of tribal identity but it's extremely complex um extremely dynamic and it's just it's super fascinating it's crazy oh yeah 100 percent with the kurds and the Hmong. oh yeah um yeah and especially with the kurds i mean the rest of iraq is just blowing up left and right and the kurds are like we got our little slice of heaven in krg up here right. that's kind of what the that's kind of what the Pamiris are, um, but without without a lot of oil. <laughs> you know, there's not yeah. a lot of oil in East Tajikistan. <laughs> yeah. There's that. So, yeah. um, so I guess going back though to the so so the Tajiks were willing to work with the Afghan embassy, understanding that there was going to be no Jairoa signature. That's really interesting. Oh yeah, and they let the embassy continue. The embassy, um, you know, continued doing its thing. They uh, it continued operating. They weren't kicked out. They didn't close down. Um, the big problem was Russia, in that Russia was pressuring the Tajiks to not like help too much. So I think there there was a feeling on the Tajik government side to be like like and there were some within the, the Tajik side. That were like, hey, let's uh, you know, let's help them out 100%. Let's launch the Northern Alliance again. Like, you know, let let's let's you know, let's get back at the let's get back at these guys on the border, the Taliban and stuff like that. But the Russians, I think, were exerting a lot of soft power and saying, nope, don't go too hard. You know, we're gonna pull the leash on you, kind of thing, because there's an extremely close relationship between Russia and Tajikistan. Um, and while we were out there in the Pamirs, um, there was. Russian, um, there was Russian um, um, uh, motorized light, light armored motorized units that were driving around like, like an entire battalion's worth driving around Jeez. doing exercises. Oh, yeah. You'd see them. You'd see their BTR 80s on the roads, like flying up and down. And they were doing actual live fire exercises um, on Unilaterally? the board. Yeah, with the Tajiks. They were working oh, with okay. the Tajiks and then they were doing um Oh, yeah, bilaterally, I should say, as I was. Um, yeah, bilaterally with the Tajiks. And they were doing these live fire exercise, like battalion strength exercises out there as a show of force against the Taliban. But then to show the Tajiks, like, we're with you, but do as we say kind of right. thing. Um, Man, that is so. gnarly. 
And yeah. so do you think that had a lot to do with them, like, shutting down the border? Or was it more they didn't want Taliban uh, sort of infiltrating up? I think I think kind of both. Um, but I think I think I think the bigger thing was just that the situation was in such flux, was in such flex mode, so unstable on the Afghan side. Mm-hmm. I think the Russians told the Tajiks, like, you know, hey, shut the border down. And then the Tajiks were like, that's kind of that's probably a good idea too. Probably we'll shut it down. Yeah. Um, and then you had instances along the border of Tajik border commanders, like who just didn't get along with the with their with these new um Taliban commanders who came into play on the Afghan side. And like at the local level, the Tajik border commanders were like, Yeah, I'm shutting this border control point down. Like, I don't care who's above me. Like, I just don't like the guys on the other end. Uh, yeah. we're shutting down. No one is coming across. Um, and that and that's kind of what you had. And then you had you had issues in um, in Khorog because you had um, you had Afghan um, and this this really affected the local economy because you have Afghan and Tajik families that have you know kind of like a civil war kind of thing. They they live on both sides of the border. The border is just mm-hmm. aligned them, and so most of the time they just go back and forth. Like these are maybe are merchants, bazaar people and stuff. Like they'll they'll live on the Afghan side and then then they'll go in the morning to their cousin's house in in Khorog and Tajikistan. You know, sell their stuff at the market and then go back home to, to Afghanistan in the evening, right? And they now they couldn't do that, and a lot of them were totally shut down. So that was a big problem for them. Um, that that affected that local population. Yeah, um, because that that local population relies so heavily on sort of. Uh, I guess when I was over there, we called it you know agribusiness. Mm-hmm. Is that you know there was only so much of what the farmers would grow that they would actually use as far as commerce. Most of it was subsistence farming. But that was still significant because that's what the thing that they would use, that was their income that they would use for months, potentially years, is being able to deliver to the bazaar. Yeah, and you shut that down, man. That's their that's their life. That's their livelihood. Yeah, exactly. So all that cross-border, like, bazaar traffic was just done. Um, and you had a lot of, you had a lot of bazaars that are actually set up between the two countries. So, like, there's a couple islands like in, in the river that you had bazaars set up there and it was a cross-border bazaar. Well, those no longer existed on that point too. Um, but going back to sort of refugees, so the, what we were looking, what we were trying to see, was there any way that we could help refugees coming across the border um, from Afghanistan into Tajikistan? And the answer was just no. It was just straight out no. It was impossible um, because you can't like you can't get across the river. The border checkpoints are shut down. Once e- even if you do get across the river, the other problem was who's going to house you? Who's going to feed you? Now you're an illegal in Tajikistan. And there are several accounts that, you know, I heard of through through sources of, um, you know, Tajiks that were like, if there's a family that wants to, like, get across the border, um, they can you know, we can get them across. We can physically move bodies across. But what are we going to do next? Mm-hmm. Where's your documents? Mm-hmm. Who's going to who's going to like who's going to house you in the Pamirs? Everyone's going to know who you are. And right. the Pamirs, despite, you know, the Aga Khan and everything, it's still this dirt poor, like rooftop of the world, like clinging to subsistence in the mountains kind of thing. Like like the Pamiris are barely scratching a life out of the mountains as it is. How are they going to help a bunch of they can't help like 10,000 Afghans coming across. They can't right. do that at all. You know, so. And then the then the other point of that, even if you did get across the border, and then even if you wanted to go to um, you know Dushanbe or the rest of Tajikistan, 
like that's another hurdle. There's only there's only two ways out of the Pamirs. And it's like these are the mountains, man. You you're gonna scale that ten thousand foot mountain, or you're gonna go through that ECP. Like it, th it's this or that. There's no getting yeah. up with it, you know. So so you'd have to like find a way to smuggle yourself through, which you smuggle yourself, bribe yourself, something. But there's only two highways out: the Pamir Highway, and then there's another highway to the north of it. And it's like you only got two options. It's not like you got like a million different back roads you can go through. You can't. It's the mountains. Yeah. So. And, and, you know, that's that might be an easy answer for a strapping young, like 20 year old, like ANA commando who's like on the run from the Taliban. But most of the refugees are not this. They're families. They have kids. They have like pregnant um, moms. You know, Afghan families are pretty big, like three, four, five kids, um, extended family, like cousins and stuff. So it's like, no, where are you where are you going to hide like like 10, like, you know, a bunch of kids and two parents and a grandma? Like, yeah, the answer is. It's very it's very difficult so they couldn't get across that way and so what i think most of the uh, well most of the refugees that came in from afghanistan um came from the uh the one of the central crossing points um due south of dushanbe which i'll pull it up in a second i forget the, i forget the name of it right now but it's just north of um of kunduz in these the crossing point the city uh i'll, I'll find it and i'll mention it no, it's cool. Well, while you're looking that up, though, I just wanted to ask, so how much of this endeavor started off um, as sort of a, a, a personal, had, you had personally motivated? Uh, you know, we talked last time you were on extensively about your time in Afghanistan as part of 1-9. Were you still in touch with your linguists? Were you still in touch with any of the ANA or ANCOP or anybody that you were working with? And then how, what was that like while you were you know, before you'd actually gotten wheels up, like when you're here in the States, I know you and I corresponded a little bit about what we could do, um, which unfortunately wasn't wasn't a whole lot at the time. I, I don't know, could you could you kind of walk us through how you, you know, some of the, the stuff that you were going through before you landed in Tajikistan? Mm, yeah. So, the, yeah. So just before that, yeah, that main crossing point, uh, Shir Khan Bandar, it was the that was the it's a bridge that goes over the Panj River. Um, which every refugee I know of who came, most of the refugees I know of in Tajikistan came over through the Shir Khan uh, Bandar, a border crossing, um, which is a, which was one of the big, it's a big uh, vehicle traffic, you know, merchant crossing, um, like big highway bridge that goes between, it's actually the highway between Kunduz and Dushanbe. So most everybody came through that and not these other ways. So just, just mm. for the listeners there. Um, but no, so when, no, when Kabul, like, like I, you know, I, it was very frustrating because like I kind of like I just like saw I sense I didn't need I didn't need to be told like Kabul like fell in late August and in June in June of that of uh you know what was it last year twenty one yeah yeah in June I was like I was calling up a lot of my Afghan friends in June in Kabul and I was like dude this is happening and this is gonna go. And when it goes, this is going to be fast. It's going to be a one-two knockout. It's going to be boom. They're in the city, and they thought they thought that a uh, precedent was going to happen because in history, when the Soviets left, they um, there was when the Soviets left in 1989, right? There is this huge battle of Jalalabad, 
And, you know, Jalal and the Afghan forces in 1989 held. And Jalalabad was this sort of uh, like a Getty, kind of like a Gettysburg moment, I guess. And everyone, you know, the Mujahideen, um, you know, the, the, the CIA was in on it, all the Arab fighters. Like everyone was like, OK, we're going to take Jalalabad and this is going to be it. And the end of the war is going to be now. And there's this huge battle of Jalalabad and the Afghan forces held. And Afghanistan didn't, you know, continued as a republic, you know, for the next several years. Um, and it is worthy to note that if Jalalabad had fallen in, because Jalalabad is one of the five main cities of Afghanistan that had traditionally been, you know, Kabul, Mazar Sharif, Herat, Kandahar, Jalalabad, and what a lot of people forget is also um, Peshawar. Um, and these have been the five main cities that has traditionally been Afghanistan. So the Mujahideen was like, if we can get Jalalabad, then we can, this will be the beginning of the end. And they made a try for it and they failed. The Afghan Republic held and the, the Republic continued um, miraculously, right? So a lot of my Afghan friends thought that was going to happen. They they are basing everything on this pr useless precedent. And they were like, well, okay, there's going to be a big battle and this is going to be drawn out. And, you know, it's going to be, I don't know, they thought there was going to be like World War One trenches around Kabul and it was like slowly encroaching kind of thing. And I was just sort of like in June, I was just watching everything and just like looking at how everything was going and my own experience with the ANA and working with the ANA and the AUP. And just, I just, you know, you can't replace the, the tenacity that the Mujahideen had. Um, you know, the Afghan commandos matched it and went above it, but you couldn't replace that in the rank and file of the ANA. And I was just like, this is, this is going to be quick. This is going to be extremely fast, violent, and it's not going to be this long protracted battle. And I was like telling a lot of my friends that in June. Um, and I was like telling a lot of uh, like a bunch of the girls that I worked with on the YouTube channel, Tech TV Afghanistan. Um, I was telling them, I was like, do you have a passport? And they were like, no. And I was like, you need to get a passport. If you don't get a passport, I can't help you. You know, and I was like screaming at them, get a passport. And then um, they were like, OK, we'll, we'll try to get one. We'll start, da, da, da. And I was telling all my uh, like I had, a, I had a really very close friend in the Afghan government, um, an Ashraf Ghani's. Um, he was actually a spokesman for one of the spokesmen for Ashraf Ghani, Samim Arif. And I was like, Samim, like, this is going to go quick. You, What is your plan? And he was like, no, you know, it's not going to go quick. We know, we know this is going to be tough, but, you know, we're going to, we're going to fight this out. It's going to be a hard year. We're going to keep on going. And now that Samim is, you know, waiting for his green card in the United States, he later told me, he was like, you were right. I, and I didn't want to tell you you were right, but you were, but I couldn't like say that to your face in June. <laughs> You know, so um, but I knew this was all happening. And then when it started, like, and, you know, when it finally did happen, it happened over like a motorcycle course. I was taken with um, with, with my fiance. Um, we were taking a motorcycle course and it was like it was like knockout one was like Mazar Sharif and Herat. Boom. And then it was like Lashkar Gah and Kandahar. Boom. Well, no, it was like Mazar Sharif and Jalalabad out. Yeah, I mean, helmet fell quick. <laughs> I mean, it was like a couple hours. Oh yeah, and then and then, but but it was like within three days, you had all five Afghan traditional Afghan cities were gone within three days, like Mazar Sharif and Jalalabad, right. gone. and then Herat and Kandahar the next day, and then the third day, like there's Taliban, like uh, you know, Toyota trucks running around in Kabul, and it was like, okay, well, that's the end. Um, but but when that when 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 that happened. Like then all the craziness at the airport started happening. And then I was like, you know, reaching out to people. And that was like, that was nuts. It was insane. 
I was on my phone on my computer um, like uh, like every day for like two weeks when that happened. Just like, you know, typing to people furiously, like translating things, getting stuff done, sending this to deal to all that. You know, I was on um, like in those first couple hours of that, like uh, this girl I knew in Kabul, like she FaceTimed me and she's like, look, look at this. And she's at the airport. She's at uh, HKI airport. And she's like, she turns the phone around and there's this like dude from the 82nd with a saw. And he's like, get back, get back. You know, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like trying to talk to him through the phone. I'm like, hey, is your platoon sergeant around? Is your platoon commander? Like, 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 uh, could I have a conversation or something? And he didn't want any of it. He was like, he wasn't even, he didn't even register that I was talking to him. He was just yelling at the crowd, like, get back. Da, da. But like, that was like the frenzy of it. Um, and like that happened. And then from then on, it was just like, it was just like a, a, a clock to the finish kind of thing, just like ticking on and then like working with all the different updates and, um now everything everything that happened was just like just so utterly utterly horrible like every every single thing that like could have gone wrong did go wrong it was like we withdrew from um the uh like the embassy staff had already been totally evacuated by mm -hmm. the time we're like oh we still have embassy staff there it's like no we didn't like the whole embassy is already gone um we like lost the embassy then we totally abandoned bagram and now we had to like fight back to get the airport. And then that was just a total mess, um, just complete chaos. And then the crowds and then the, I mean, that that culminated in like the, the suicide bomber that killed the guys um, from, uh, was it 3-8 or uh, no? Yeah, the 13 Marines and the sailor. Yeah, 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 yeah. I forget, uh, well, well, I forget what the battalion, uh, battalion there with. Um, but yeah, and that... Like that was like the worst case scenario that could have happened. And everybody was like preparing for that to happen. Like a week prior to that, everyone was like, this is what, this is the worst thing that can happen. And eventually it did. Right. Um, so that's, you know, that went down. Um, but then, you know, throughout all that, it was like, everybody's, uh, I, I, I did appreciate how everyone sort of came together and I would like, that that was like that was kind of the cool part i don't know about about american humanity at least is that like i was like when i started that i just started like you know typing things writing people like talking to people getting updates from kabul messaging back and forth staying up late at night like my days began at like three in the morning when right. it, when the mornings came on in kabul or, or or you know late late at night or something and then um but but everybody like all, all, all like American government structure just kind of like vanished and you had everybody just helping everybody. And you had like state department people reaching out to agency people, reaching out to SF, reaching out to army, you know, to Marines, to civilians, you know, and, and like contractors, you know, I had, I had like OGA contractors telling me like, look, this is the way you go over to that gate. Tell them this, da, 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 you know, reaching out to people over here, state department people saying, look, this is the form you need to you know, this is what we're taking now and then all these other things. And so that that was the that was the sort of amazing humanity part about it is a lot of Americans sort of stepped forward and be like, this is this is so wrong. Like, we need to do something about this. And everyone just like dropped rank, like took the rank off, took the uniform off. and was like, we're getting something done. Like, we're doing yeah. this. Now. So that was yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of stories like that. Um, friend of the show has a book, um, Tom Schumann, called the Always Faithful about his um, experiences getting his linguist uh, from Sangin out. It actually releases uh, on the 9th, so next week. So check it out if you get a chance. 
Um, fantastic book. Um, but yeah, so many of your, your, what you're talking about, it really does. There's so many echoes with some of the other stories that I've heard, um, which is very uplifting, but also it's such a sad statement on, you know, sort of how seemingly thrown together the, the withdrawal was. But I guess I want to fast forward then to your time in Tajikistan and you're seeing the, the troubles that the Afghans are having trying to come across it. Like what was going through your mind then uh, when you get there and you, you feel like, oh, there's, there's almost nothing we can do at this point. How, how, what, are you, what are you thinking about then? I don't know. Just kind of like processing everything and just kind of like just like going through the motions. Like it still wasn't it still didn't, you know, it's, it's like a death or something like it still didn't seem real. And you're just yeah. kind of dealing with the new reality and stuff like that. Um, we got to meet uh, our, our, our group got to meet uh, Ahmad Shah Massoud's uh, son, um, uh, Ahmad, Ahmad Massoud. Um, so that was that was kind of interesting. Um, and, and and that was, you know, because a lot of the Afghan staff based in Dushanbe, they're all uh, Afghan Tajik themselves and, you know, have a very close affiliation with uh, Massoud and the Northern Alliance and stuff like that. So it was interesting that we kind of got to, you know, that part of Afghan history with Massoud. And yeah. we were there on September 11th. And, it, you know, September 11th is a horrible day for Americans, but we were there with the Afghan embassy with all these Afghan Tajiks. And they were like, this is also the day for them. It was like, well, this is also our bad day, too, because this was when Massoud, our Massoud, you know, was assassinated, assassinated. On two, yeah. two days prior. Right. So we were there on the 9th and the 11th, too. Yeah. You know, so they were like, yeah, uh, September 9th. Um, and it was kind of, it was kind of like, I was with, uh, we were with, uh, like Miran, the ambassador's son was over at, we had, the, we were renting out this apartment in Dushanbe and he was over at, at the place and he was like, we were talking about Masood or something. And I was like, I, and he was killed on, oh, oh yeah, today, today in 2001. I was like, crap. And Miran was like, yeah, he was we like, you know, that's, that today's important for us, um, for that. So, um, yeah, how different would have things have been had he been alive September 11th? Yeah. Yeah. You know, very, 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 you know, very different, very different history. Um, his uh, his um, his aptitude for what what he could have been in Afghanistan was was a big deal. Um, and Amrullah Saleh was there, too. Um, Saleh, um, we met him um, as well. I, I backtracked. We didn't we, we didn't meet Ahmad Masood. We didn't meet we didn't meet his son. I'm confusing guys right now. We met uh, Saleh. Um, and because uh, Saleh uh, found his way to Tajikistan um, after, um, you know, after everything went down in Afghanistan and in, in the Panjshir Valley and stuff. And that was very interesting. And then, I mean, and even even he even he was like because we were because we were all, you know, you know, FBR is all about, you know, all right, let's head to the border. Like, let's make things happen. Like, how can we how can we go to the how can we go to that point of um, that point of friction and make the most difference as a relief organization and stuff? And it was a very like somber moment for us because we were kind of like, Man, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can really affect in so many ways. And even Saleh was like, he kind of said, like, there's nothing we can do now. Like, it's it's over. <laughs> the Republic's gone. We're, we're not. No, there's not going to be like a like a Northern Alliance counteroffensive or something like that. Or we're not going to push. We're not going to make a push in like, nah, we're just kind of licking our we're just kind of in shock right now yeah. so but yeah so that was kind of that was even on that so that was on on the afghan resistance side right um they were like there's nothing we can do like so 
what are we going to do as the internationals, as the, as the, as international, you know, partners? It's like, we, we're not going to do anything if like the locals aren't going to do anything. We have to work, work with the locals um, to yeah. achieve sort of deal. So, was, yeah. So then what, how, how long were you there then? Did you, you guys stick around and, and if, while you were there, what were you able to affect, if anything? Yeah. So we were there for, I was there for about a month and a half. Um, uh, maybe even almost two months, September and all of September and then into October. Um, and what we we're able to affect was um, getting to know a lot of the Afghan um, families um, in Dushanbe, um, around, around the country. We were able to affect in terms of reporting back to the U.S. and saying mm. there's nothing to do here. Um, and telling, like, sort of telling other, because so many other organizations, like, wanted to make a difference as well and wanted to support us and wanted to be like, yo, like, here's a bunch of, like, stuff, like, uh, make it happen, da, da, da. And we were able to tell them, like, there's nothing, there's nothing to be done kind of thing, kind of give that sober and reality check sort of deal. That's what we were able to do with that. Um, that was a very important thing in terms of um, us being able to tell others, like, hey, there's nothing that can be done here. Um, but, and then we connected with a ton of different families, um, which a lot of them, the Free Burma Rangers is still supporting and is still getting a lot of funds to and helping with visa stuff and um, visa applications and that kind of thing and just being persistent about that and looking at various options and connecting people. Um, and that's and that's something for a lot of families that are that are, have have nothing left. They're living off of nothing. They're living off of whatever in uh, Dushanbe or in the east, in the Pamirs, for example. Um, we did food distributions for a lot of those uh you know those bizarre those bizarre families that were now stuck on either side of the border um we organized food distributions for them um thank god uh, you know everything came into place um and we made a lot of friends and you know did a lot of praying and that was you know that, that was the, that was the effect of that i think it was 100 percent a worthwhile trip 100 percent. we definitely saw saw everything in person um, and were able to ascertain that from tajikistan um, and we're able to affect um, a number of lives, a number of lives at least. So, yeah. Mm. What organizations would you recommend that our listeners who want to part, like participate financially uh, look into to uh, help this issue further? I think the best one in the United States is um, No One Left Behind. Is probably the best one. They have been the there's they're a 501c3 NGO um, purely committed to SIV uh, SIV families only. Um, not to say that you know other Afghan refugees you know don't deserve don't deserve help as well. But you know if we go back to like like what was this all about? This was helping the Afghans that risked their lives you know with us on um, on the patrols that we went through and everything. Um, this is about them. Um, you know, this was about helping them primarily. And that was the really, really yucky part about the evacuation in Kabul was that, um, like you had all, you had all the, like a lot of the crowds that bum rushed, you know, the C-17s and you had all these people like running over each other and you had, you know, all the 120,000 people that got in a lot of like, you know, great. We got 120,000 people that didn't want to live under the Taliban. That's awesome. But I wish we like, if it had been done correctly, we would have gotten these 60,000, you know, SIV holders and their families that were waiting due to the bureaucracy that they were put under. It's like those those families took priority 
Instead, you had all these others, all these other folks that were like, yeah, we don't really want to live under the Taliban either. Let's jump on a C-17. And which, good on you for, for leaving, I guess. But then for a lot of them, now they're stuck in the U.S. And now they're like, man, we didn't really want this life either. Like, this kind of, like, take me back to Kabul. Or some of them went to Uganda. And they're like, this sucks even more. So, but it was the yeah, SID. I- I sponsor a family um, out here, and that was one of the things. And, and he's doing well. His family's doing well. They're integrating. Uh, he's an accountant, and he's working in Manassas. But, yeah, that was the thing that he was saying in the beginning part. He's just like, I'm Afghan. Like, I didn't want to be a naturalized American. I didn't want to have to fight for a visa to be here. I wanted a Afghanistan that was like America, but in Afghanistan, like, I wanted freedom. I wanted liberty. I wanted my kids to not have to fear tyranny, and but I didn't want to have to do it from the United States. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and it's kind of like that's an annoying part about it. I don't know. Um, for me, I, I've had that like like just the absolute pleasure and honor, and thank God, I've had uh, three. Four of my translators in Helmand Province are now in the U.S. and oh, they're nice. They're doing amazing. Um, all of them are doing cool. They're, um, you know, one of them is a taxi driver in Vegas. Another <laughs> one is a trucker, like he does CDL. And then um, another is, uh, you know, he's working at he well he was last working at Walmart like in Manassas, but he was like working on getting a license and stuff like that. And you know, I don't know where he's doing now, but I, th- I know he's doing good. Like, I know he's doing okay. But all of them just super hardworking and just like just putting their back into everything. But my favorite is uh, is Ahmed is Nasir who's who's uh, who's in the book that me and Shranz wrote. Yep. Um, the picture of him is there, and I talk about him a bunch of times. He he's just yeah I, I love that he's now like part part of America because like he's just he's he, he's gonna make a great American like just hardworking funny dude like just go getter you know. But he was like I took him to Barnes and Noble. And he was, we went, we went up to like the cashier and I, and I was like, Oh, my I got to get you my book. So I wanted to get it to, for him. So I bought my own book at Barnes and Noble and like, I autographed it to Nasir. We went up to the cashier and he's just like, so like, he's Tajik himself, but he's just like that very, like, like, like that very like proud in your face, kind of like, you know, like a bit of a masculine Afghan culture kind of thing. And he's telling the cashiers like, you know, this guy wrote this book and I went on patrols with him in Helmand province and we did it look i'm right here like this guy is crazy and i'm like oh man that's here you're embarrassing right now um <laughs> he, he was just yeah like I, I hung out with him later in uh in 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 uh in michigan and went went up to go see him great dude and he because <laughs> he was an uber driver for the longest time and i was driving him and another um another interpreter that came through with him one of his friends <laughs> he's just so like unapologetic from the back seat, he goes, hey, Viney, you know, you really shouldn't drive Uber. And I'm like, why? It's like, you know, because you get a bad review every single time. <laughs> like, don't, don't do it. Like, trust me. Like, I, when you get a bad review, your rates go down. Like, it happened to me once, never again. Always got to be slowed, you know, stop, roll to the stop sign, da, da, da. I'm like, dude, you're a jerk, but fine. Like, <laughs> like thanks for the advice, bro. Like, so, um, but he, but he's like, you know, he's one, he's one, he was one of our Terps and we, we, uh, he's in the U S now with his family and hopefully he's going to be at his, uh, at my wedding with his wife in October. So it'd be oh, good awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Man. So. Well, dude, this has been so great. I, I really, you know, we, I don't want to say that it, 
something would control this narrative because I don't, I don't think there's such a thing as, as controlling this narrative. All sides need to be told. But there has been an overwhelming focus on Kabul, the airport, um, and things that were going on there, obviously, uh, just because this the visceral sort of response to all of the imagery coming out of there. But to hear your experiences, because you hear a lot, obviously, of what the Afghans are going through is sort of like you said, the realization that, hey, this isn't going to be protracted. We're not going to stop. There, There is no Maginot line here. Like, we're, we're not stopping this. It's mm-hmm. happening. And so just the panic of people trying to just go wherever they could to get out. Um, and so to hear your take and your experiences from up north, which doesn't get a lot of um, publicity and is not talked about a lot, man. So, <laughs> excuse me, mm-hmm. really, really appreciate um, you coming on to talk about some of your experiences up there. And again, so I looked it up. It looks like uh, No One Left Behind. You can find them on No One Left. That's N-O-O-N-E-L-E-F-T dot org. No One Left Behind. You can donate. Looks like there's op- opportunities to help out in other ways as well. But thank you for giving us that. Um, we'll post that in the show notes. Uh, your book is Into the Hellman with Walking Dead find out all about um your experiences in afghanistan and you know again just i just want to applaud you and uh thank you for everything that you've been doing since you've got out of uniform and then you know best luck with everything you're doing now man well thank you very much vic it's an honor and a privilege and i thank god above all that we can have this opportunity to talk and discuss and bear witness to um some of these tragic events in, in history that we can shed a light on them in at least some small way you know um, with that. Yeah. Amen and Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. We have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck Magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scottlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.